15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello, once again, thank you for joining us on Space Nuts. It's a show all about astronomy and space science. My name is Andrew Dunkley. I am your host. And today we're going to celebrate a birthday, the Parks Radio Telescope in New South Wales. It's only 120 kilometres down the road from where I am. It has just turned 60 years old, so uh, that's extraordinary and still going strong. Uh, we will also be looking at, speaking of telescopes, the benefits of putting a telescope past Saturn. Now, I know we talk about the James Webb Telescope and where it's going to go, but uh, there are now thoughts that we should probably put one out past Saturn, and Fred will explain why. Apparently, there are some real benefits into doing that. And audience questions today from Jim, who wants to uh, challenge Einstein. Uh, also, Damien, who uh, wants to talk about uh, something completely different today, dark matter. And Robert uh, has got a question about Mercury, which I, I find fascinating, but uh, even more fascinating was his uh, second question about what we need to look for and how we might detect the light being produced by aliens on other planets. We produce light, which travels out into space. So how would we detect the light of other civilizations, like from their streets and houses and sporting fields and the like? Uh, that's a great question. So we'll be tackling all of that today on Space Nuts. And joining me as always is astronomer at large, Professor Fred Watson, the Space Nut Space Warper himself. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. Oh, thank you. Yes, uh, Space Warper, I like that. Yes. <laughs> I wonder where that idea came from. I don't know. How's yeah, could, the book going, by the way? <laughs> there it is. Um, well, I don't know. I assume somebody's buying a copy. Um, it, it went into the bookshops on Monday this week, uh, three days ago. Um, it, uh, sorry, two days ago. It um, has had some nice responses from the media. I've done a lot of um, radio interviews and a couple of things like that, uh, yeah. which uh, include uh, I had a nice chat with Ian Canellan, who is the editor-in-chief, I think, of Cosmos magazine. Oh, wow. uh, which is um, one of the leading science magazines here in Australia, uh, and he tweeted the uh, the recording this morning. I think I think it's basically a, a video conversation, uh, mainly because I could see myself on the tweet. But he's picked up on a story I told him about um, when I was a youngster trying to observe the sky with actually a borrowed telescope at that time. It belonged to my history teacher at school. He was very generous to lend lend it to me. Um, a telescope. Uh, about four feet long, uh, made of brass, ancient machine. I had it in the back garden and a, and a large policeman turned up and said, hello, 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 what's going on here then? What's all this then? Uh, yeah, and um, he thought somebody had phoned him up, phoned the police to say there was a kid playing around with a bazooka <laughs> in the backyard. <laughs> So anyway, that's that's turned up in this record. I'd forgotten I mentioned that actually. Turned that's up in this funny. recording, Cosmos. <laughs> that is funny. Oh dear, dear, dear. As long as you weren't making rocket engines in the garage and fueling them with motor mower petrol. Uh, yeah, I did. I, I did the rocket engines too, but fortunately yeah, nobody turned up that. after that. <laughs> oh dear, uh, it's funny. Well, um, yeah, I, from from all the. Um, uh, comments I've seen in the Twitter sphere and on Facebook through the the podcast group, uh, people are pretty excited about your book, Fred. So that's lovely to hear. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah. That's um, that's the first report I've had of any of anybody other than the media who's vaguely oh, no, interested few, in it. <laughs> yeah, quite a few people busting a gut to to get a hold of it. So I think you'll be fine. You might you might get enough for a, a chicken dinner or something. <laughs> now. Um, <laughs> That's yeah. all I get. Uh, let's talk about the uh, Parks Radio Telescope, uh, which uh, has just celebrated its 60th birthday, commissioned on the 31st of October, 1961. Uh, and uh, the, the story behind this telescope is intriguing. I, I see it maybe a couple of times a year driving past um, where it's located, just north of Parks in central west New South Wales. And it is a sight to behold. You just can't miss it. It's just, you know, it's so prominent on the um, on the landscape there, and, uh, and and it's still in the middle of sheep paddocks <laughs> or it, wheat paddocks. Is it? 
Yeah, no, it's sheep paddocks. Uh, sheep paddocks. It was last time I was there. Yeah. Uh, so you're absolutely right. I think um, the Parks Dish, for for all you know, optical visible light telescopes are closest to my heart. I think the Parks Dish is one of the most beautiful telescopes in the world because mm. it's set in the Gubang Valley, uh, and when you see it from the road, you see this background of hills behind it and the you know the the the, the, the uh, pasture lands that it's, it stands in, uh, and it, it, it's unmissable, exactly as you've said. Um, it's just a few kilometres from the, the main highway, and I'm surprised there aren't more accidents in that, that yeah, area. Yeah, I was about to say that. It's quite a distraction. It's a distraction, yeah. You've got to look at it and uh, see where it's pointing, things of that yeah. sort. But, yes, it's, uh, it is 60 years old, or it was on Sunday. Uh, uh, it was... Um, Launched on Halloween, <laughs> Halloween Day on in 1961, um, and uh, the, yes, there's a, if any of our listeners uh, feel like checking out uh, the conversation, uh, which is a you know an online news feed, uh, actually a journalist journalist run by experts who are also journalists. That's the way mm. it's supposed to be. Uh, but there is a piece there by John Sarkisian, who's um, I think he's telescope operations manager, he's an operations scientist. I know John very well. He's a great guy, a great science communicator, uh, has been based at Parks for as, certainly as long as I've known him. Um, instrumental, uh, incidentally, in uh, running uh, the David Merlin Awards, which I don't know whether you know about. I'm sure we've talked about them before. David Merlin, another good friend, but also the man who effectively put colour imagery into astronomy back in the 1970s. Yeah. Um, and Nowadays, amateur astronomers are doing work that rivals what David did with the Anglo-Australian Telescope back then. Uh, mm. and John and he kicked off the David Merlin Awards for Amateur Astronomers, um, which I think has been running for 13 or 14 years now. It might not be quite like wow. that long. Jeez, I might have to have a crack at that. You should, with your new <laughs> telescope when you've got it. Yeah. I'm getting one. <laughs> and your iPhone. <laughs> Anyway, that's off the topic. Um, um, we can talk about that later because your telescope's sure. something I'm very envious of, um, even though you haven't got it yet. Uh, the, um, the, 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 the Parks dish, though, was uh, really um, a big step in absolutely cementing Australia's place as a as a, a you know a world class nation in terms of radio astronomy, uh, and indeed that. Uh, but by then. Radio astronomy in Australia had been going for 15 or 16 years. Uh, it was mm. a fairly mature science because it, it kicked off uh, with uh, World War II radar equipment on the coast uh, uh, near Sydney. Um, in fact, one of the southern suburbs of Sydney, sorry, the northern suburbs of Sydney, not very far actually from where I'm sitting now. Um, the Collaroy Plateau, they had a, a, a radar dish there that uh, basically was used to pick up uh, the radio signals from the sun, uh, which is the, the brightest radio object in the sky, um, and try and figure out what was going on. Nobody knew what this radio stuff was all about, where it was coming yeah. from. Uh, and that was also, there were a number of people who later became legendary in the world of radio astronomy, including Ruby Payne Scott, who was the world's first radio astronomer. Um, she worked for the what was then the Radio Physics Laboratory, the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, CSI, CSIR, which is mm. the forerunner of today's CSIRO. Um, yeah, and, and they had another one at Dover Heights, which is uh, in a different part of Sydney. So uh, fantastic stuff. Then the radio telescope was built. Um, it was... Um, I think the biggest in the world at the time, the only other one uh, competing, and I can't remember the diameter of uh, the other one, Parks is 64 metres in diameter, but 1957 saw the building of the Jodrell Bank radio telescope uh, in uh, a place not very far from Manchester in the north of England by another individual who became a legend, uh, Sir Bernard Lovell, uh, he was very much a name that was always in the media when I was growing up. Uh, so the, uh, the the between them, the Parks dish and the Jodrell Bank dish really revolutionised radio astronomy in those early years. Jodrell Bank is bigger; it's seventy six metres. Yeah, okay, uh, that sounds yeah. right. Um, but uh, that you know, Parks can lay a claim to being one of the most uh, advanced radio telescopes um, in the world. It, it was using receivers that uh, 
um, that, that I think were probably better than what they had in Britain. I'm not sure. Uh, once again, these were all ex-radar receivers. Sorry, go ahead, Andrew. No, no, no. I just said maybe you're right that it uh, technologically was uh, probably the, the best telescope, uh, radio telescope uh, in the world at the time. But it's kept up, which yeah. is good. Yeah, it has. Um, and, and today it's got state-of-the-art uh, cryogenic PAFs. Uh, PAF is a phased array feed. These are basically image sensors for radio telescopes, which have been pioneered here in Australia uh, by CSIRO. An extraordinary mm. story. Um, one of the other things I like about the Park story is, and this is fairly well known, uh, in, including the diagram that's in John's article, um, one of the, the engineers who looked at the issue of building this giant radio dish and how you might um, actually uh, engineer it so it wasn't going to fall over or blow over with, with the wind. Uh, it was Barnes Wallace, um, who was the famous engineer who devised the, the uh, bouncing bombs that were used in the Dambusters raid oh, in yes. 1940, whatever it was, 42 or thereabouts. Um, Barnes Wallace, yeah, very well-known and very highly respected engineer. He also... Uh, had a shot at designing the park's dish. His design was not the one that was eventually chosen, but there's a picture of it in uh, in John's in John's article. Mm, that's amazing. That is incredible. I I suppose um, it, it it's achieved a lot in sixty years, but uh, I, I suppose most Australians connect the Parks Radio Telescope not only with the movie called The Dish, which is a funny Australian film if you want to watch it, but uh, the serious side of it was that. Uh, the dish was uh, really instrumental in getting some of that um, that imagery and audio from the Apollo Eleven mission, and uh, those those images went around the world. So it it, uh, it, it was yeah a key player in that uh, particular event. Indeed, it was along with, and it's always worth mentioning this, along with the Tidbinbilla. Uh, antenna mm. as well, which is in Canberra, and that, that, that they shared the glory with all that. Uh, they tend to be the forgotten ones, but um, it's very interesting. I know, uh, I think he was the chief engineer there at the time, Mike Din, his name is, if I remember rightly. Um, and it turns out, we, Matt, Mike and I have spoken a number of times. Uh, he's now he's about ten years older than me, but um, it turns out that he and I used to get the same bus to school in Yorkshire. <laughs> so uh, he was crazy. probably a bit ahead of me, um, but uh, but it was the same bus that we used to get. Yeah. No, the um, the telescope's uh, price tag back then was one point four million dollars. Exactly. Well, they and say that's sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, that's twenty five and a half million in today's money, which is incredibly yeah. cheap. Um, yes, it was done on a shoestring, even at twenty-five and a half million. Uh, that's uh, in today's terms. That's in incredibly cheap, really, mm. for, for a telescope like that. And given what it's done, uh, you know what it has achieved, not just in uh, in the Apollo issues, but it's also the instrument that first detected fast radio bursts. Um, uh, it's detected all kinds of things. It it's detected the non-wow signal that we yes. spoke about a couple of weeks ago, BLC1, right. the Breakthrough Listen Candidate. And it's detected uh, people opening the doors of microwave Exactly. <laughs> and in fact, John Sarkissian, who wrote the article, was one of the people who figured out what was going on with that, that these peritons, as they were called, were actually caused yeah. by people opening the microwave when it was still cooking. Yes, exactly right. And uh, one, one other thing I like is uh, last year, in keeping with Australia's uh, move towards reconciliation with the Indigenous people of this country, uh, the local Wiradjuri people uh, gave the telescope the name Murray Yang, which means Sky World, which I think is lovely. Yeah, it's a lovely name. I agree with you. Mm. It's a delightful name. Fabulous. Very... So if um, if you're ever uh, in the neighbourhood of, of parks in central New South Wales, make sure you visit the CSIRO facility, the Parks Radio Telescope. It is worth visiting. I actually haven't been to the site proper. I've driven past it many times, but I... I I went there as a kid when I came out here on holidays to visit my cousins years ago. So I'm long overdue to go back and have another look. And Judy and I keep saying, we've got to go in there one day, but we're always in too much of a rush. <laughs> and <That's right. laughs> it's, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's one of the great failings of people. They live near these incredible things. And I, I remember when I lived up in uh, Mackay, North Queensland, Fred, 
uh, and that's the gateway to the Great Barrier Reef, one of the uh, natural wonders of the world. And I remember living there, and of course Judy and I went out to the reef and visited the islands, and you know did uh, all sorts of things because you know we were there, we we could do it. But you speak to people who'd lived there thirty years or forty years. Oh yeah, no, never been there. <laughs> Never been there. Uh, and it's a natural thing. And the same thing happens in Dubbo. We've got a world-class zoo you here. You do. That's right. And people, the, the locals don't go. Yeah. I mean, they just don't go. It's just, oh, it's, yeah, we'll get there one day. You know, it's not going anywhere. Uh, it seems to just be a, a natural human trait that um, people come from all over to visit these things, but the locals don't bother. Yeah, you know, the, it should follow the adage, you, use it or lose it. That's the... Yeah, exactly right. Um, yeah. Well, and... the... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say one more little anecdote, which is not astronomy related, but when the zoo was first touted to be built in Dubbo, the locals rebelled saying, oh, no, the lions will escape and eat us all. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully, they weren't listened to. No. But um, just going back to parks, though, Andrew, um, you you really should go if you haven't been for that long because the visitor centre there is quite spectacular. Mm. Uh, It's a really nice visitor centre with a very nice cafe attached to it. Uh, And... um, that um, was funded, of course, uh, probably 20 years ago now, but it was funded from proceeds from the movie, uh, from the dish, because the, oh, the, right. the telescope took a, took a took some sort of licence fee and that went into building the visitor centre, which is fabulous. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. You used to have a nice visitor centre too, Fred. At Siding Spring? Mm. Uh, it's still there. It's uh, oh, it survived the fire, did it? It did survive the fire. Yes. Yeah, I um, knew. Uh, yeah. I wasn't sure what survived and what didn't, but yeah. um, no, it did. Yeah. It, it's opening up um, uh, slowly uh, in the in the you know in the wake of COVID nineteen. Uh, but but it, it's I think you can only go at certain times, but it's it's opening mm. up gradually. Yeah, that's another place worth visiting. It getting is. up on top of Siding Spring and uh, the observatory up there. It's uh, it's truly spectacular. And um, I re- really enjoyed that day. We went right to the very top. Yes. And it was supposed to be summer, I think, but it felt like, <laughs> it felt like about minus 50. Yeah, it's always windy up there. Yeah. Uh, it felt like you're on top of the world, though. It's incredible. Mm. Uh, so happy birthday to the Parks Radio Telescope. And if you ever um, get to, uh, to come over here from overseas and, and visit, don't forget to drop into Dubbo and say hi as well. I'd love to see you. <laughs> This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Time to take a little break and tell you about our sponsor, NordPass. Now, don't get this confused with NordVPN, which I've told you about before. NordPass is all about your passwords and your cybersecurity in regard to how to store and control your passwords and, you know, how to limit access to them by people you don't want getting hold of them. NordPass is a really fabulous piece of software that enables you to store all your passwords in one convenient place, easy access, and very, very secure. Uh, And it will help you in a great many ways. Now, if you're like me, you have a massive number of passwords for a massive number of reasons. And sometimes you'll try to log on to something or you'll be logged out of something and go, oh, damn, what's my password? And you can't remember. You can look it up easily with NordPass. It's an easy download piece of software, very, very, very easy to use, and and it has all sorts of benefits. It will keep an eye on your password health. If they think you're vulnerable, they will warn you. Uh, It can do a data breach scan, so you'll know whether or not somebody's trying to get into your stuff. And it's got this brilliant thing that not many other uh, services like this have, a password generator. It can create a password on your behalf. You don't have to remember it. It will use it for you once you log into whatever it is you're logging into. Uh, So it it can uh, set up some passwords that no one would have a, a prayer of guessing. Now, as a Space Nuts listener, we are once again offering you 70% off, get up to 70% off on a two-year plan. They'll give you one month free. That's on the premium plan as a Space Nuts listener. There's a special URL so you can take advantage of NordPass. It is nordpass.com slash space nuts. Nordpass.com slash space nuts. Check it out today. If you want to secure your passwords, make them easier to manage and easier to access and don't have to think about trying to remember them, NordPass is for you nordpass.com slash space nuts 
Now, back to the show. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Now, if you've ever thought about becoming a patron of Space Nuts, you can do that by visiting our website, spacenutspodcast.com, and click on the supporter tab. As a patron, uh, there are benefits, and you get uh, a commercial-free version of uh, the podcast. Uh, you also are supporting the podcast and keeping us uh, very much alive and making up the losses on Fred's book, by the way. And uh, it's it, it's very much worthwhile. It's not mandatory. I, I would never um, go down that road. I don't think that would be proper. But it is voluntary, and it was an idea that came from the Space Nuts audience. They wanted to contribute to the show, and so that's how Patreon came about. You can also do it through Supercast or PayPal, however you like. Um, slip some cash into my letterbox. I'm okay with that. Um, but yes, if you want to become a patron, uh, all the details are on our website. So um, yeah, check it out if you so desire. Now, Fred, uh, from one radio telescope to uh, I'm guessing what would probably be uh, an optical telescope of some kind that they think would be better suited uh, out past Saturn. Uh, this is a, 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 a bit of a different type of uh, slant on sending a telescope into space. Of course, we've got Hubble. We're soon to have James Webb. Uh, but now the thinking is, look, we could probably um, you know, get better results going out past that and sticking one there. Um, why, why, why are we thinking that? Uh, it's an idea of uh, an individual scientist uh, who's written about it. I'm afraid we're plugging the co uh, conversation uh, platform today. And, and they deserve to be plugged. They do, the conversation yeah. website is excellent. It's fantastic. That's right. So this is uh, this has come from Michael um, Zemkoff. I think I'm. I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Who's an associate professor of physics at Rochester Institute of Technology uh, in the United States, of course. Um, and what he's proposing is a small telescope uh, with a, a, you know, a lens perhaps six inches, 150 millimeters in diameter, but put it on a spacecraft and whiz it out to place it in orbit beyond the orbit of Saturn. Mm. Uh, why would you want to do that? <laughs> this Good is, question. Yeah. So you, you, you're sending it a billion, a billion miles, a billion and a half kilometers from uh, the sun uh, and the inner planets. And um, the, the reason why uh, that's a good thing to do is because you get an outside view of the inner solar system. And that's something that we haven't had before. Um, mm. You know, apart from things like Voyager 1, I think it was, doing the, um, doing the look back to the small blue dot, uh, things of that sort. Uh, but the the uh, view from the outside of the solar system could be extremely instructive because you're looking at first of all the dusty disk around uh, the, the the solar system. Um, the, the solar system is a very dusty place. Um, you know, it, it was formed from this swirling mass of dust and gas uh, in which the planets themselves formed, and there's still a fossil of that, uh, the last vestiges of that protoplanetary disk still exist in the shape of, of the dust uh, around the, the um, uh, inner solar system. And you probably are aware that we can actually see that with the naked eye. Uh, it's something called the zodiacal light, which ah. is um, in, in your skies out there in uh, central western New South Wales, up there in Dubbo, um, are perfect for seeing the zodiacal light, Andrew, because I used to see it very often when I was at Coonabarabra, not very far from, from you when I was working at the observatory. Um, mm. What it is is this pillar of light that um, is uh, basically sticks up above the horizon um, after the sun has gone down and after twilight has ended. Um, in the direction of the sun, say, at sunset, <clears throat> you can see this pillar of light stretching upwards. <clears throat> Excuse me, which is aligned with the ecliptic. It's aligned with the uh, the path of the or the plane of the planets in the sky. And what you're seeing there is the dust in the in the planetary plane being lit up by the light of the sun, which is now below the horizon. Uh, you can right. see the same thing before dawn as well if you're an early riser. 
um, really very faint. I'll no, have to pay more attention. Yeah, if you're up, yeah, if you well, you are up before dawn at times, aren't you? Yeah. In winter time, um, it would be worth having a look. Uh, look to the east before the sun's coming up, and see if you can find this pillar of light. Mm. Um, there's a diacal light because it lies along the, the zodiac essentially. There's a you know which is the the ecliptic where the the planets travel in in the sky. Um, so imagine being able to study that. Uh, actually, I'm just going to throw in one more um, piece of trivia about the zodiacal light. It's what um, Brian May did his PhD on. There you go. Oh, is that right? Yeah, from Queen. Yeah. Wow. So that, that, that's, that, that's just throwing that in. But imagine looking at that from where Saturn, you know, the, beyond Saturn, from the depths of the solar system or beyond the orbit of Saturn. Let's be technically correct about this. Then you're going to see the whole inner solar system uh, and be able to investigate the distribution of this dust. <clears throat> now, there is uh, something has happened this year, actually, uh, which kind of underlines how if how important that is and it is um i can't remember whether we talked about this or not excuse me andrew i've got to clear my throat <clears throat> it's the mid-morning frog in the throat i do beg your pardon yeah. <clears throat> it, i always get it at this time there's the a diacal throat there's a diacal throat that's right uh, i need one of those zodiac cubes to clear it off um <laughs> yeah uh New Horizons, the spacecraft that flew by Mercury in 2015, a NASA spacecraft, uh, that was used to revise the, the total number of galaxies in the observable universe because uh, it carries cameras on board. And mm. um, what they did was they looked deep into space with these cameras and could do a revised count of the of the galaxies that could be seen down to a certain level. And it turns out that the same calculation done by the Hubble Space Telescope, which is where our best guess as to the number of galaxies in the observable universe comes from, that is looking at the sky in the inner solar system. So it's always looking through this veil of dust uh, of the zodiacal light. And the... The best knowledge, the best appreciation, or the best understanding we had of the total number of galaxies in the universe back in 2017, I think, which came from the Hubble telescope, it was two trillion. But the view from the New Horizons telescope, way beyond Pluto, with its clearer view of the sky, actually meant that that was revised downwards. It's now oh. um, 200 billion, <laughs> um, a factor wow. of 10 lower, and, and it's because. Um, New Horizons is looking, not looking through this dusty veil that there is in the, in, in the solar system. So that's one of the really good reasons for sending the spacecraft uh, out to, to look back at, uh, uh, at the inner solar system from beyond the orbit of Saturn. But there is another one, <clears throat> mm -hmm. and that is that if you do that, you can also use the sun, the sun as a telescope because of its gravitational, gravitational lensing effect. Lensing. Yeah, so you can get back, get well away from the sun. Uh, you basically obstruct its direct light and look at the Einstein rings that form around it because of its gravitational lensing effect. And by looking at those and analyzing them, uh, you can actually see objects that you certainly would not be able to see with such a small telescope. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a possibility that might actually allow, for example, in fact, uh, um, the, the author talks about the possibility of mapping planets in other star systems. Mm. Uh, that is an extraordinary thing to uh, envisage, but uh, with a, the, using the sun as a gravitational lens and forming an image at this telescope, you never know. That might be a possibility. Yeah. Quite incredible. And he's talking about piggybacking it on some other mission. That's so, right, yeah. Yeah, that, that, that could be a big advantage. It's uh, It seems to be the way to go. You, you, you work out a mission-specific situation and target, and then you think, well, you know, what else can we tack onto this thing and take advantage of the mission, uh, like they did with the helicopter on Mars? Exactly, so, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, I, I hope this one happens. It sounds like there's all sorts of good reasons to do it and some pretty great thinking. So if you'd like to read about that particular story uh, or the Parks Radio Telescope, uh, we highly recommend theconversation.com website. Uh, lots of fabulous articles there that uh, are well worth reading and well-researched and well-told. Uh, one of the probably one of the best journalistic websites around, I, I would uh, venture to say. This is Space Nuts. Thanks for your company, Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. I think I just said that. I think you did too. (laughs) (laughs) Before our segments, I always count in, uh, in reverse. And that's exactly what, yeah, I didn't need to do it. Hmm. Um, now, um, at the risk of uh, embarrassing Freddie, just went to uh, check on his wife and it turned out to be the, um, the, the self-accrested cockatoos or galahs uh, instead. So um, it's pretty insulting, Fred, I'm sorry to say. Well, I could just hear this noise outside. <laughs> I knew she was away and she's, um, she's, she'll be back soon. That, um... These birds sound like... <laughs> they were actually well, ah they don't when they when they're kind of saying uh, you got any bread mate or anything like that it's a much gentler tone yes it is a much gentler sound uh, it reminds me of another uh, instagram uh, page that i follow called Peggy and Molly, and it's about a dog and a magpie that have become okay. the best of friends, and the magpie can bark. It's oh, really quite yeah, extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. They're amazing birds as well. If you're on Instagram, look it up, uh, Peggy and Molly. It's it's worth it. Um, it's just so much fun, that page. Um, but we've got questions to <laughs> answer, Fred, here on Space Nuts. So let's go to our first victim, and it is Jim. Hi, this is Jim from Clarksville, Tennessee, and I had a question about E equals MC square. I know that M stands for mass, uh, but I understand that it's resting mass, and how can mass be resting? Because everything's moving, and... uh, if that's the case, wouldn't mass be momentum? So E equals PC squared. Love your show and love you guys so much. You're just wonderful. Thank you. Oh, that's nice. Thank you, Jim. Um, I'll give you an example of um, mass that's not moving. It's copies of Space Wolf on the, on the bookshelves. <laughs> Certainly not moving at relativistic speed. No, definitely not. Uh, but also kudos to Jim for uh, for challenging uh, one of the greatest scientists in history. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it, it's a great question actually, and it's one we haven't tackled before. Um, it's not; it's actually the term is rest mass, not resting mass. But it, right. you, you got the idea. It's also sometimes called invariant mass, and it is the mass of a particle when it's at rest. In other words, it's not moving. Now, Jim's absolutely right; everything is moving, uh, and special relativity tells us that as things move. Uh, their mass increases as they get nearer to the speed of light. Uh, it's one of the bizarre uh, consequences of, of special relativity. And that's why uh, when you're talking about the mass of a particle, you need to specify its rest mass. Um, but by the same token, <clears throat> uh, because of that mass energy equivalence, um, rest mass is also equivalent to rest energy, which is the energy a particle's got. Uh, when it is not moving, uh, and mm. so um, that that so the equation works no matter what speed you're going at. Uh, you don't need to build in the momentum uh, because you know if you've got this particle that's travelling uh, at close to the speed of light, E equals m c squared gives you its its um, relativistic mass, the mass it's got. Sorry, the the relativistic energy content. In other words, the energy content it has. Uh, taking into account its movement, so the the mass of the particle and its movement. Um, yeah, it's a, but it's a very, very good question. And I always think it's one of the most bizarre things that as things travel near the speed of light, they get more massive. It's very odd. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. All right. Um, wasn't that difficult to answer after all, Fred? <laughs> well, it depends whether that was uh, was an answer that people think is any good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, I'm sure Jim is adequately satisfied. Uh, Let's uh, and thank you, Jim, for your question. Let's uh, move on to a question uh, from Damien. Uh, I don't think we've had a question about this before either. Damien here on the Goldie, basking in the sunshine, watching the waves, pondering dark matter. I find it interesting that we have a handful of dark matter in our solar system when it's 27% of the total and that all the normal matter is 5%. Please explain in my best Pauline Hanson whiny voice, how do you have something that's 25 times the amount, but in our solar system, it's only a handful. Are there solar systems, other solar systems that have more dark matter than all the normal matter? Where are they? Is Alpha Centauri? Thank you, Damien. What is this dark matter, matter of which he speaks, Fred? <laughs> I wish I knew. <laughs> Look, it seems to have taken over from black holes as the, um, the, the, uh, as the, <laughs> the most uh, asked question in our in our show and that's not surprising because it's such a mysterious thing but um uh yeah i'm not sure that the, the numbers stacked up i was doing not the quite. math in my head while he was talking no, that, didn't that's right yeah not quite so and um, what do we know about dark matter we know it is some some something that does not interact with normal matter in any other way except that it has gravity and that's how it's been revealed by its gravitational attraction on galaxies to hold them together um, when they should be flying apart. Uh, that's how we know it's there. It's one of the reasons why we know it's there. Um, but the, the proportions um, are a little bit, you've got, you kind of got to be a bit careful. Uh, the, so these numbers come from uh, basically looking at the universe as a whole. We do these gigantic galaxy, galaxy surveys uh, that show you how mass is distributed in the universe and how it's affected, you know, gravitation affected. And you can work out these overall statistics. And um, uh, it was it Damien? Was that uh, the quote? Yes. Yeah. So as Damien mentioned, sorry, Damien, I took too much going he's on. From, he's from that horrible, decrepit part of the world. <laughs> anyway, that's all right. Um, the the, be- the approximate distribution of stuff in the universe is 5% normal matter, as you said, something like 25 to 27% dark matter, and something like 75%. Um, sorry, something like... It, it's actually... The, they, they don't stack up. I've forgotten the exact number. Yes, about 70%. That's right. 70% is dark energy, which we really don't understand, an energy of space itself. Uh, roughly 25% dark matter and roughly 5%. Uh, normal matter, which is mostly hydrogen. Uh, mm. Basically, all of it's hydrogen. The rest is just the, the rest of the stuff is a tiny fraction. So that's the sort of average over the the whole universe. And um, we know that uh, dark matter clumps where normal matter is. So where normal matter clumps, dark matter clumps too. That's the, the way to put it. So galaxies okay. are richer in dark matter, um, but the proportions are probably about the same in terms of the ratio of normal to dark matter. And so that um, that exists in the solar system, in the system of Alpha Centauri, in systems probably at the other side of the galaxy, those proportions would remain. Um, the, the reason why we don't kind of detect it in the solar system is because we think that dark matter clumps on much larger scales than the scale of a galaxy. Uh, so that, you know, if you're, if you're looking within a galaxy, it's mostly fairly uniform. Um, mm. Some astronomers have suggested that it might not be that uniform, that there might be clumps within galaxies too, um, uh, but that the smallest clump would be of the order of a thousand light years. And that still means that if you're in, you know, if you've got a solar system, a planetary system, uh, that scale is much, much bigger than the scale of a planetary system. So, to all intents and purposes, we live in a, a dark matter field which is uniform, and that's why you don't find the sun pulling stronger in the direction that you think it would be because there's more dark matter there. It's effectively okay. uniform, so you don't detect it. Right. Well, that, that would that be a clue as to how to figure out what this stuff actually is 
specifically? It, yes, it is, um, uh, b- because it tells you uh, a lot about it. For, for example, the fact that we don't see uh, a lot of gravitational lensing going on when we look out uh, to distant stars tells you that it's not something like often planets or black holes or normal matter that's sort of in you know some kind of debris that's dark and invisible it's not that uh, and the observations i mentioned before tell you that it's got to be something much more exotic than that and the, the best guess is this species of subatomic particle we don't know what it is people have theorized that it might be something called an axion or a neutralino but we we really don't have any th- um, uh, observational evidence to support that yet all we know is that it's there <laughs> yeah gosh all right uh damien um can't answer your question <laughs> beyond what, what we already know which is um the percentages and the and the the clumping effects of it. Um, yeah. Uh, thanks for getting in touch with us. Lovely to hear from you and hope you're suffering your jocks on the Gold Coast. <laughs> now, uh, let's move move on to our final quick. We're going to do three today. Uh, well, actually, we're going to do four because Robert's got a double bunger. Yep. Good day, Mr. Dunkley and Professor Watson. This is Robert from Reading, Pennsylvania in the U.S. I had a question about mercury. Being as it has a strange orbit, they say, and is missing quite a bit of the crust from the planet, I was wondering if maybe that was the planet that struck the Earth in the early days, and that's how the moon got here. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. And also, with the advances of the telescopes that we have, and they keep getting better, I was wondering if you think that maybe someday they would be able to detect light on a planet as our planet is lit up at night maybe if we could detect that that would suggest an intelligent life but being that uh, probably there was no dinosaurs on that planet so there would be no petroleum probably what do you think the technology would be there to detect for industry so like if they were wind power or solar power how would you detect that and what would you look for well that's about all i have right now i have a million other questions that i could ask but i'll (laughs) save it for now thank you very much enjoy the podcast and i look forward to hearing your responses thank you very much Thank you, Robert. Um, great questions. We'll start off with, uh, you know, could Mercury have hit Earth and created the moon? Um, it, something did hit Mercury, we think. Uh, Mercury's orbit is is not that peculiar. I think for it to be to have been the object that did hit Earth and created the moon, it would, would have had a much stranger orbit than the one it's got. Uh, that object is something we call Thea, uh, it's a mm. theorized um, article, uh, but uh, theorized object. But uh, but um, astronomers are confident enough in it that they've given it a name. Thea, the mother of the moon in uh, Greek mythology, I think. Very nice idea. Um, but Thea was probably smaller as well. Um, it, it had to hit the Earth hard enough that it would create a cloud of Earth-like material that, that then would coalesce into the moon. Um, without contaminating it with its own material, if you see what I mean. Because we know that yep. what the moon is made of is much the same as what the Earth is made of, and not mm-hmm. what something else is made of, including Mercury. Um, so it it seems unlikely that it, it was the planet Mercury. But Mercury is thought to have suffered um, something large hitting it in the early history of the solar system because it has a core... Uh, an iron core that is big and mm-hmm. is really more fitting to a planet the size of the Earth or Venus. And, but it's not. It's got a mantle around the core which is very thin, and the suggestion is that a, an early collision knocked that most of that mantle off. And so Mar- uh, Mercury uh, has forever been a, a smaller planet than it should have been. It's got a, a, a big heart, if I can put it that way, yes. but only a small mantle. Yeah. Um, his question prompts a thought in my mind that brings us back to the Thea collision. What if that hadn't happened and the moon wasn't thus created? Would we exist? Maybe not, because um, 
the moon's had a number of effects on the Earth. One is stabilizing the Earth's axis of rotation uh, mm. uh, so that it doesn't wobble about too much. It acts almost like a flywheel. Uh, compared yeah. with Mars, which has shown evidence of you know, changes in its axis of 10 or 20 degrees over quite short timescales. If you've got uh, an evolving population of of, of uh, living organisms, the last thing you want is gigantic seasonal changes, which you get mm. over that sort of thing. Uh, and the other well, is... We're managing to create them for ourselves. <laughs> indeed we are. But the other thing is uh, the tides probably might be what actually allowed... Um, um, primitive animal life to get from the oceans to the to the land because you've got this region where <clears throat> you've got both water when the tide's in and land when the tide's out and that's a kind of you know a transitory region that might have allowed uh, sea creatures to become land creatures and um, to generate humans rather than things like um, highly intelligent whales and how much bigger would earth be if the moon wasn't created don't know <laughs> a bit bigger probably a bit bigger <laughs> yeah when you think the moon has uh, an 80th of the mass of the earth that's the fraction uh okay. so you know you might in naively you might just say well add add one eightieth of the earth's mass uh to its present mass that means it's grown by a little bit or uh, it would have been a little bit more than one percent bigger in terms of its yeah. mass hmm. okay thank you damien um Oh, no, Robert, Robert. We're halfway through Robert's question. Um, So Mercury hit Earth. Uh, The next part of his question was about um, the advancements in telescopes and whether or not we'd be able to look at exoplanets and see whether or not artificial light was coming from them created by other civilizations and how could we detect that i i love that question yeah it's it certainly um is a very appealing idea uh, and um has been obviously thought about many times but uh you've got to kind of look in you know in the case of the earth uh, <clears throat> it's only when you're in orbit Time. a couple of thousand kilometres above the Earth's surface, that you you actually see these lights. Mm. Um, you you get to interstellar distances, uh, they fade into insignificance. They're, 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 they're just tiny, tiny pinpricks. And especially if you're trying to observe planets against the glare of their parent star, uh, yep. the lights are really very, very small. On the other hand, if the... Um, you know, telescope beyond Saturn that we were just talking about a few minutes ago materialized and you could use the sun as a gravitational lens. Maybe you get enough magnification on that to spot the light of, uh, uh, spot the continents of uh, an exoplanet. I still doubt you'd see the lights though, but you know, it's Mm. clearly something that is in the back of people's minds that if you, if you found unusual light coming from a planet, Maybe uh, you should think about intelligent species. Uh, the other half of um, Robert's question is really interesting, though, because you know if you've got an, a, a planet where there is no fossil fuel, um, yeah. and so they're not putting um, sulfur dioxide and things of that sort into the atmosphere, which you might be able to detect uh, by spectroscopy. Uh, if you if you're relying entirely on solar or wind power, what have you got to to show that there is a techno civilization there not much is the answer um and and the same is true you know um i kind of mentioned this in in space war that there might be there might be intelligent civilizations that we could never detect another would be if um just going back to what we're saying a few minutes ago if we hadn't evolved as land creatures if we were on a water world which was entirely surrounded by ocean we'd evolved underwater um there might not have been much awareness in that body of water of things going on outside. Uh, mm. And it may be that there would be no um, no signals of any kind that would reveal that uh, there was a technological species uh, in, in existence underneath the ocean. Um, yeah. Interesting question. Look, there's all sorts of um, weird possibilities, I, I suppose. Yeah. And uh, yes, and, and you, you've got to think about the... Um, the possibility there there may be prehistoric civilization. So, you know, they've only just invented fire, so yeah. <laughs> got no hope of finding yeah, them. Yeah. Um, That's right. And the other issue with uh, the detection of artificially created light is is the time factor. Yeah. I mean, we <clears throat> the, the light travels at a 
maximum speed over a vast distance, there's every probability that uh, our light hasn't travelled very far since we first started creating artificial light in the scheme of things. So other civilizations probably, even if you could detect it, it wouldn't have reached them yet. Maybe not. That's right. <clears throat> yeah. Hmm. That's always the, so, you know, the issue uh, that you, when you're searching for the needle in the haystack of, uh, to find um, alien civilizations, it's not just a needle in the haystack of space, it's a needle in a haystack of time as well uh, yes, because we don't indeed. know how long civilizations last. Um, exactly. That's yeah. that's the other issue. Yeah. Um, there's every chance that people may detect our civilization's uh, activities after we've gone, and we won't be around yeah. by the time they come to say hello. Could be. Mm. All right. Uh, thank you, Robert. Great questions. Uh, thank you, Damien, and thank you, Jim. Uh, Jim, I was going to come and visit you, but I missed the last train to Clarksville. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> Okay. Oh, uh, and um, by the way, if you do have questions for us, don't forget to visit our website and uh, send us your uh, email, which you can do on the AMA tab, or you can click on the um, uh, recorder option and send us a, a, a voice question. Don't forget to tell us who you are or where you're from. We love to know these things so I can tell lame jokes. But uh, yeah, it, uh, it's, that's the best place to go. And there's also a, um, a send us your voice message tab on the right-hand side of the website. And while you're there, don't forget to visit the Space Nuts shop because um, there are all sorts of things to um, to see. Uh, a few people have told us, oh, I'm going to buy some merch. I really want to get some Space Nuts merch. Over my shoulder, you can see the Space Nuts tote bag hanging on my door. Um, just there yep. somewhere Got it. the Space Nuts yep. mug. Yep. Oh, no, that's my golf trophy. But uh, you know what I'm saying? And there's the Space Nuts shirt. See? So, uh, and that's just a few things. Flip-flops, there's all sorts of uh, other bits and bobs in the Space Nuts shop on our website, spacenutspodcast.com. So check it out. And, um, you know, Christmas is coming up and there are people that are very hard to buy for. You might just, um, you might just find something perfect for them on our, on our website. Uh, that's where we leave it for another week, Fred. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Uh, great to talk again, Andrew, as always. And I look forward to sharing the merchandise with you next week. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Fred Watson, uh, we'll let him uh, space warp his way into the rest of the week and we'll catch him on the next episode of Space Nuts. Thanks for your company. From me, Andrew Dunkley, it's bye-bye. We'll catch you next time. See ya. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. <laughs>